Let's read Revelation 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's uh, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, uh, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority. For 42 months, there's your time period, same time period, keeps showing up, 42 months, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain if anyone has an ear let him hear if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes if anyone is to be slain with the sword with the sword he must be slain here's a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints then i saw another beast rising out of the earth it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is... 666. All right. I gave you a quote from Osborne. I'm not going to read it. I'll just tell you to circle right in the middle of that quote the words sovereignty of God. This section, everything in the chapter we just read, Revelation 13, is not to make you come away and say, wow, these beasts are amazing. But everything is written here, is written so that you come away and say, clearly God's in control of all of this. Over and over and over again in what we read, it said it was given to the beast or the beast was allowed. All of these passive Greek verbs are saying to you, God is giving this authority to the beast for a time. And when he's ready, he'll take it back. And God is allowing the beast to do these things. None of these things are outside of God's sovereignty. Uh, Eugene Peterson. I think this is a very helpful summary of what we just read. The beast from the sea and the earth are the images by which St. John will show us the satanic will covertly uh, at work in these large areas of government and religion. With the sea beast, the dragon will frighten us into disobedience. And with the land beast, he will deceive us into illusion. So there's two tactics. 
He didn't get the child. He didn't win the war. He didn't get the woman or her offspring. So here's his next two tactics. Raw power and fear, number one. Number two, deception and confusion. So we'll trace all these through. John saw a beast from the sea, which represents Satan's attempts to use political power to destroy the people of God. So notice what he says about this beast from the sea. He has ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems and blasphemous names. Uh, All of those images, uh, this great authority and the power he had from the dragon are intended to communicate to you raw, unopposable power that he has. All those images communicate power. In John's time, who was it who wielded raw, absolute, unopposable power? Caesar, Rome, however you want to slice that out, that's who he immediately has in mind. But he also has in mind Daniel 7, which we're going to circle back to in just a minute. So just put that thought on hold. Beast from the sea. Next, there's a beast from the land, and it represents Satan's attempt to use religious deception to destroy the people of God. So those are the two tactics. You're going to use political power to force people into doing what he wants, or he's going to use religious deception to destroy the people of God. He'll use them in conjunction. He'll use one or the other. But those are the two tactics being described in Revelation 13. Uh, Notice what he says about uh, this beast out of the earth. Verse 11. It looks like a lamb. has horns like a lamb. But it talks like a dragon. It's deceptive in its nature from the get-go. And he goes on to talk about he performs great signs to deceive those who live on the earth. So political power and religious deception. Uh, I'm going to give you one idea that we're not going to chase down, but I think this is really important. When you take these two together, uh, they are the apocalyptic fulfillment of Job's Leviathan, beast in the sea, and the behemoth, the beast on the land. And you can read about them in Job 40 and 41. And you can dig through the commentaries and you can Google and find all kinds of stuff online. What is the Leviathan? What is the behemoth? Is it a crocodile and a elephant? Are we talking about dinosaurs? I mean, Google it. There's all sorts of crazy stuff. You can trace this down and and come up with all sorts of stuff. I think he's talking about two actual creatures in Job 40 and 41. And... I think those actual creatures represent forces of evil at work in the world. And part of what God is saying to Job, as Job is under intense spiritual warfare and Satan is involved, even though Job doesn't know it is, God's saying, I'm in control of all these creatures, the biggest and the baddest, and I'm in control of all the forces of evil, all the way up to the top of the food chain, all the principalities and powers, all the demonic forces all the way up to Satan himself. He is only going as far as I tell him to go. That's what God's describing to Job. You can trace that out on your own. Taken together, the dragon and the beast represent an unholy trinity. This is key to understanding Revelation 13. The dragon tries to play the role of the father, the sea beast plays the role of the son, and the land beast tries to play the role of the spirit. So, 
Genesis 1, in the beginning, God creates and he starts calling things like land out of the water. And the waters are chaotic and he's calling order out of all of that. And this dragon is trying to do what the father did. I'm going to call something out of the water, a sea beast. It's completely uncreative. There's nothing original about any of it. He's just parroting what he's already seen in the past. Uh, we know about a lamb who was slain, who was killed with a mortal wound and came back to life. And what does this sea beast do? Well, one of its heads are wounded and it comes back and it's sort of this mimicking and this aping of what Christ has accomplished. And then we read about a land beast and the land beast shows up and does what? He tries to get everyone to worship the sea beast. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? We actually sang about this Sunday, if you were here. He fixes our eyes on Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to help us see the truth about Jesus and know the truth about Jesus and love the truth about Jesus. So this third beast shows up and he's trying to play uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. I didn't give you a quote, but I think Eugene Peterson makes a wonderful point about these three beasts. I've talked to people throughout my time as a pastor who talk about this chapter, and they say, that's scary stuff. These beasts and dragons and out of the sea and the heads and the horns and all the rest of it. And I agree with Peterson. I don't think this is supposed to scare you. I almost think it's supposed to make you laugh. Like, it's serious. So it's not like just ha-ha, flippant, no big deal. But you're not supposed to look at this faux, fake, rip-off trinity and be impressed with it. You're actually supposed to look at it and say, those are like off-brand shoes. They're not as good as the real thing. That's like your off-brand car. That's not as good as a real thing. It's like a cheap, generic imitation that doesn't stack up to the real thing, and you're almost supposed to look at it and, and think it's ridiculous. So Hamilton has a great quote here. Uh, just describing all this. Using the first beast authority, the false prophet's going to induce people to worship the first beast. In this way, the false prophet, this other beast, is a satanic parody of the Holy Spirit. In the real trinity, Jesus points people to the Father. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. In the satanic false trinity, the first beast points people to the dragon. Second beast, the false prophet points people to the first beast, the one who faked crucifixion and resurrection. So let me make a few more observations here. Uh, one about the sea beast, and then another one about the land beast. This is really key to making sense of what's happening. The sea beast is a mixture of Daniel's four beasts taken out of Daniel 7. So we're not going to read Daniel 7, but I'll give you a picture of what Daniel 7 describes in terms of a vision. Daniel 7, he sees four beasts. Uh, he sees a lion with wings, then he sees this lopsided bear with bones in its mouth. And then he sees these four-headed leopard with wings. And then he sees this gross, terrible, nasty beast. Uh, and in the vision, what he's seeing is the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And when John describes the first beast from the sea, he says, you know, it's kind of like a lion. It's kind of like a bear. And it's kind of like a leopard, and it's kind of this nasty thing coming up out of the sea. 
And he's taken all of those and mashing them together. So this is, this is key to, I think, how you got to make sense of this. In John's day, it's Rome. But previously, it was Babylon. And before that, it was Persia. And after that, it was Greece. And then it was Rome. And guess what? After Rome, it's going to be somebody else. It is Rome in the power of the Roman state and Caesar and all of that stuff. But it's also any ungodly political force that wants to use power to prevent people from worshiping the Lamb. And so I gave you some quotes. One from Mounts. He says, it's the Roman Empire, but it's more than the Roman Empire. Shriner. It's not confined to Rome, but it does refer to Rome. It's every manifestation of evil in all governments. Uh, Beale says it's Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Sodom, Rome. It's all the future kingdoms of the world. All of these kingdoms represent this beast from the sea. So in our world today, we wouldn't look at any of these empires. But you could look at North Korea and say there's a totalitarian state where believers are not allowed to worship or have the scriptures or follow Jesus or have a church. And the state is ultimate. Power is what controls everything. You could look at China in a lot of similar ways. A lot of other nations. And you could say there's just brute political force. You could look at Nazi Germany. And you could say that's brute political force to impose a worldview that denies the truth of the gospel. That's these beasts that John is describing from the sea. I've even told you in recent weeks, I think you could look at Western liberal democracies who want to impose a godless worldview on its citizenry and say that's the beast. All of those governments look really respectable at the UN, don't they? They show up, they have their suits, they give their speeches, they have their translators. It all looks very, you know, nice. They're all smiling. But what John's doing is he's ripping the curtain back and he's showing you what's underneath that. What's real, even though you don't see it on display in a UN speech. And I'm not trying to make any political point about the UN. I'm just using that as an example. Where it looks one way and John's pulling back the curtain to show you that it's really something else. I also think that this first beast uh, will culminate in an Antichrist figure, big A Antichrist figure, or if you want to use Paul's term, a man of lawlessness. I do think that's coming, but I don't think this is only about a future Antichrist. It's about Rome, and it's about these godless political powers before Rome, and it's about the godless political powers after Rome, and I do think in the end, at some point, it will have a, a full manifestation in the Antichrist. Poitras describes that, I think, pretty well, and I'll let you read that quote. Uh, one thing to note, I just think this is really interesting, uh, too good to pass over. The sea beast, if you want to be literal, it had a plague on one of its heads. A plague. The Greek word is plague. And most English translations don't read, he had a plague on its head. Most of them say he had a wound on its head. But in Revelation, it's always God that sends plagues. Who sent the plagues on Egypt? God sent the plagues on Egypt. Who sends the plagues in Revelation? God sends the plagues in Revelation. And I think that this word plague and the fact that it's on the head of this beast is a direct fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 
where we read about this offspring of the woman who will come, and he will be wounded, but he will crush the serpent's head. And I think it's a direct fulfillment of, of the first promise of the gospel. So that's the sea beast. Uh, the land beast, later he will be identified as a false prophet. So he's not called the false prophet here, although he does false prophet things. But in later passages, you read about the dragon and the beast from the sea, and you read about the false prophet. So clearly this beast from the land uh, is the false prophet. So here's what I would say on who, who's the false prophet. We said, who's the sea beast? Well, it's Rome and the ones before him and the ones after him and ultimately an Antichrist figure. Who's the false prophet? Well, Jesus said, you need to be on guard because many false prophets and false Christs are going to come. Don't just look for one. If you're just looking for one, you'll miss all the other ones. Many of them are going to come, and you need to be watching for them. In John's day, who would be the force imposing the worship of Caesar? It's the imperial cult. And it's these priests who work for Rome, who show up in your village and say, you need to pinch the incense to Caesar, and you need to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you don't do it, we're going to kill you. And we're going to take your business. And they're enforcing with religious deception and political power combined the worship of this first beast. Uh, who would it be in our day? Something that's deceptive. Something that promotes a false worldview. Something that at times might rely on political power. I think you could look at the media. Not to be too conspiratorial. I just think you could look at the media and certain agendas that are pushed. I think you could look at uh, higher education. I don't know if you realize this, but there's pretty much one worldview on all university campuses. Not a lot of diversity of opinion. There's one thing being promoted. Uh, I think you could look at advertising. I think you could look at just the spirit of the age and the worldview of a culture and say all of these things can function in this false prophet type way to be deceptive and at times to rely on political power. So here's the part everyone really wants to talk about with this second beast. It's the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. So here we go. The land beast demands that mankind worship the sea beast in his image and those who refuse to worship and take the mark are persecuted and or killed. So just for a second, think biblically. When you read about an image of a false god and people being forced to worship it, and if they don't, they're killed, your mind goes where? Yeah, book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and all of that experience, okay? I think that's clearly part of the background here. The question is, what, what does this mark refer to when people are being forced and backed into a corner to worship this beast? There's about, I don't want to exaggerate, there's about seven different explanations of this mark. I'm just going to give you the two most common, okay? Here's, for a lot of people on a popular level, the most common is something called gematria. Gematria. So this is where you take letters in the alphabet, 
you give them a numerical value, A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and then you spell a word out and you add them all up, okay? So for 2,000 years, people have been looking at 666, and they've been trying to back into a code of who this might be. So here's some of the possibilities that you can get 666. I mean, just a few of the possibilities. Nero, Caligula, Gaius, Domitian, those are all emperors early in Roman history. Uh, the Titans, if you know anything about Roman mythology, some people thought it was the Titans. Uh, the word itself, beast. Martin Luther, that says Marin Luther. It should say Martin Luther. Some people thought Martin Luther was the beast, and Luther and some of his friends thought the popes were the beast. So that went both ways. Hitler, Kennedy, Kissinger, six letters, six letters, six letters. What could be more convincing? Ronald Wilson Reagan. Clearly it's Reagan. Clinton, Obama, on and on and on again. I'm going to tell you the best thing I read all week in studying. This comes from G.K. Beale. He says, here's the three ways you play the Gematria game. Okay, three rules. Number one, if a name doesn't work, you add a title. So guess what? Nero doesn't add up. But if you throw the right combination of titles, you can kind of get there. If a name and a title don't work, you transliterate it. So you take a sound and you move it directly into another language. You have to do that with Nero Caesar. You have to transliterate it from Greek into Hebrew. But if the transliteration doesn't work, you can try alternate spellings. And with Nero Caesar, you have to spell it wrong to get 666. Otherwise, you get 616. So Bill is basically saying, you get whatever you want. You can get Brian Shrum. You can get Brady Mason. You can get Hubcap Siegler. You can get whoever you want. Just figure it out. Add a title. Add a middle name. Sir, Mr., Pastor. You can get there however you want to get there. So I just think you ought to throw that out the window. I'm, I'm not convinced of that at all. The other way to think about this is thinking about the difference between 666 and 777. I'm going to go back to this idea of the unholy trinity. And I'm going to make a point about how Greek was written and what this would have looked like in the original language. You would not have had numbers 666 in the Greek text. That's not what you have. You have words spelled out. So what you literally have in Greek is hexakosioi, hexakanta, hex. That's what the text says. And when John says calculate it, I don't think he's telling you codes A, 1, B, 2, figure it out, add a title, misspell it transliterated. I don't think that's the point at all. I think what he's doing is he's writing out a number because that's how Greeks wrote out numbers. And he's saying, calculate this. Think about this. What would this be? It would be six and a six and a six. It would be a complete falling short of perfection on every level. You've got a dragon and a beast from the sea and a beast from the land and he's trying to pass it off like he's the real thing, and he's not the real thing. He falls short on every single level, and I think that's what John is describing here. So Peterson says 666 is a triple failure. Uh, Michael Gorman says this is a parody of perfection. 
And Tom Schreiner says, this is not a literal number. Don't understand this mark uh, literally. I'm just telling you this for your consideration. I promise you, Eugene Peterson, Mike Gorman, and Tom Schreiner agree on very little when it comes to the book of Revelation and theology. And they all agree on this. This is not some code that you use a little key master thing to figure out and you've got some name. He's just saying this is a falling short. This is not perfection, but it's sub-perfection. Uh, Poitras, just to put a bow on it. What's the mark of the beast? It's counterfeit for the seal of God's name on the saints. So we've already read about that in Revelation. That the Spirit of God seals God's people. What is this unholy trinity doing? It's trying to be like God. So God seals his people. So these beasts are going to mark those people. He doesn't have anything original or creative. He's just doing what has already been done. So the beast owns those who are marked. They're his slaves. A mark denotes spiritual allegiance and ownership, both in the case of God's mark and in the case of the beast's counterfeit mark. In both cases, the mark is at root spiritual rather than visible. The multitude of speculations about a visible mark are actually beside the point. So if you've read the Left Behind books, this becomes a big deal when one guy, I don't remember exactly how it happens, he like accidentally gets tattooed with the mark. He wakes up and he's got the mark and he didn't mean to get it and there's all sorts of confusion about what's going on and people have speculated, what if you accidentally get it? What if you get it, you don't mean it? What if you get it and change your mind? And these guys are saying that's not really the point. This is a pulling back the curtain saying to you, don't give your allegiance to the enemy. Don't give your allegiance to political power ultimately. Don't give your allegiance to deceptive religion or spirituality. So what would this mark have looked like in John's day? Practically. It could have looked like the imperial cult who came to your town and said you need to pinch the incense and if you do it you get this certificate that says you're good. Like that could be the mark. Pinching the incense could be taking the mark. Right? You're not getting a tattoo on your head but you're doing something to show your allegiance to something that's less than God. Uh, within the book of Revelation, there's evidence that these trade guilds that operated in Asia Minor had ways of enforcing sexual immorality and drunkenness and idolatry. If you want to do business in this town, you've got to participate in the trade guild. Especially the letter to the church in Thyatira seems to indicate this. If you don't participate, guess what? No one's going to buy your stuff. Like, you're out. You don't, you don't play the game, you're out. Well, they're not asking you to get a tattoo on your head or a microchip. They're just saying you need to go along with wickedness and idolatry. And if you don't, there's a consequence. Persecution and maybe even death. Uh, what would it look like today? It could look like believers in China having the CCP knock on your business. Ron Hinesley's dry cleaners in China and saying, we want you to put this image of the emperor up in your business and if you don't we'll shut you down we want you to promote something that's godless and wicked and if you don't there's a consequence in the united states it could look like hey if you don't change your social media picture in june to the right colors we'll all know we'll know what kind of person you are like the, there's lots of ways that this could play out and all the stuff that 
evangelicals get crazy about in terms of microchips and tattoos is completely missing the point for what John's actually describing with this mark. So, almost done with chapter 13. In response, John calls believers to endurance, faith, and wisdom. Endurance, faith, and wisdom. There's a question about how to translate the part about the lamb who was slain in the book. Um, and the question is, was it the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, or was it the book that was written before the foundation of the world? And it's not exactly clear, but I think the best way to think about it is that the book was written before the foundation of the world. So, dragon, and a beast from the sea, who's going to use power and just try to crush people, and a beast from the land, who's going to use deception and rely on the political power of the first beast, that's a lot of evil and wickedness and hate and oppression for God's people to deal with. And I think when you come to the end of that chapter, there's a parallel just to geek out for a minute in Lord of the Rings. You remember the scene, if you've read it or watched it, where they're fighting at Helm's Deep and they're backed into this valley and the the enemy is just coming in waves and they won't quit and they won't quit and they won't quit and they do literally everything they can to prevent it and there's nothing. They can't do anything. And there's a scene where Theoden basically gives up and he says, what can men do against such hate? There's so much hate. There's not anything we can do to stop this much hate. That's kind of the feel from 13 with these two beasts and the dragon and they're opposing and they're pressing and all the rest. And in the book and in the movie, Aragorn says to him, let's ride out. Let's just go face him. And he says that because he knows help has promised to show up on the third day, and it's the third day, and they're going to go out, and they're going to fight this great battle. And they do it, and they go out, and they win. And what I'm saying to you is the parallel here is you've read 12, and you've read 13, and you come to the end of it, and you think, ugh, what are you going to do against that? What are you going to do against all that hate and violence and oppression and persecution and deception? And I think the answer comes in chapter 14. Yes, we endure. Yes, we have faith. Yes, we need to be wise. That's all in chapter 13. But we're also called to worship and to preach.